if you remain standing, please, and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And today's text will go from verse 10 through verse 20. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We have some in front of you under the, the chairs in front of you there. Hear now God's word, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. And for context, I'm going to start even uh, earlier in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a hundred of, hundreds of years ago, a monk turned priest, turned doctor of theology, enjoyed preaching and lecturing often, but also had a healthy appetite and enjoyed frequent, frequenting local pubs, enjoying the latest tunes, eventually using some of those melodies for his next hymns. We sang one of them earlier today. But yet he was a troubled man in his soul, never really thinking God could forgive him, for he continually failed in his eyes to do enough good works. It was a constant dilemma for his soul. But then came another man named Tetzel, who started to teach people in the church that they could purchase something called a letter of indulgence, where they could pay a certain cost to the church to have their sins for, uh, forgiven. This bothered and irked and troubled our rather insignificant professor. And later it prompted him to write up 95 theses or theological questions and points and supposedly nailed them to the uh, Wittenberg Castle Church doors. This man, of course, being Martin Luther, who in 1517, at the end of October, helped start the course of a true reformation of the church by presenting these 95 theses. Luther, of course, wasn't the only figure involved in the reformation, but he quickly went from insignificance to a major influencer in the Protestant movement. And during this season, though, Luther truly was in despair of his own failures to be quote unquote good enough. A lot of people think that, okay, there's this reformer named Martin Luther, and from the very beginning, he had everything squared away about the gospel, and of course, the 95 Theses was just an outflow of that, and he had everything squared away and, and, and done in terms of the struggle of, of finding the gospel. No, it was, a, it was a work in progress for him. It wasn't until he meditated yet again on Romans 1.17 that everything started to change for him. He said his eyes were open, it was like the heavens were opening its gates. He called this almost like a conversion experience, even though he's, he taught and preached from the, the Bible probably for many years. 
The verse being Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so for the, for the first time, Luther realized that the only way to be counted or considered righteous before the eyes of God was not by how hard he tried, or as we sang earlier, how hard he strived, or how many good works he could accumulate in life, but strictly through faith in Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed or credited to him. Another pastor and theologian that helped spark the Reformation in Europe was someone named John Calvin. And after Calvin died, his followers summarized his teachings about the salvation of God as the doctrines of grace. Some of you guys are familiar with that. And some of you are also familiar with the acronym, even if you're not from the Reformed tradition, the acronym TULIP that summarizes these doctrines or what people call the five points of Calvinism. And so today in our text in Romans 3, we'll cover the first point of the doctrines of grace called the total depravity of man. But an important point is that these reformers, they didn't want theologies or doctrines named after them. That was not their goal. But they were simply trying to get back to the source material of the scriptures. There was something, it's, it's, there's a thing called humanism, which is different from our 21st and 20th century context. But back in the 16th century, humanism was going back to the source, going back to, okay, the Bible wasn't written in Latin. Let's go back to the source. Are we missing something in the trans, in translations? And so because of out of this kind of discipline of humanism, they went back to the original Hebrew for the Old Testament. They went back to the original Greek in the New Testament to get back to recapture what the Bible actually taught about salvation, justification, and the grace and sovereignty of God amongst so many other important doctrines. And as we go over today's text and learn about any human's total depravity, may that point us then back to the gospel because this is the main goal for the reformers. Let's go back to the scriptures, recover the, the gospel of the Bible. And then when you speak about the gospel, it can never leave out speaking about the grace of God. And that's why today's sermon title is to Total Depravity and God's Grace. As I said from the beginning of my time here at, at Westminster some two years ago, and you've heard this over and over from Bible study leaders and former pastors, I'm sure. But first, if you want to understand uh, good news and grasp that fully, you need to understand bad news first. If you go to a doctor's office, Robin, I wanted you to come in today, and I said, okay, I have no idea what this is about. And he says, sit down. I was like, what is going on? I didn't do any tests or whatever. And he says, you're disease-free. And I say, okay, I'm gonna go back to Culver's, but I, I'm not really sure what, what this was all about. But then he says, oh, no, no, you, you don't, I'm sorry, I thought you knew, but you have this uncurable disease. And so obviously, if you know that first, then you appreciate so much more about the solution. But that is talking about temporary things, things of the physical nature. Let's talk about the spiritual nature of things, what is actually eternal. When you're told God forgives you of all your sins, that's not going to lift your soul, lift your heart to praise 
unless you realize how wretched of a sinner you are in the first place. When you're told by the grace of God, he can save you, that's not going to lift your soul and heart to delight unless you believe and realize that you're actually in need of saving. And you think of how many people don't believe that they have any need for a savior. In order to truly understand good news, we need to understand bad news first. And oh, does this passage bring the bad news? Not even one is righteous. But how did we get here? What came before this passage? Well, in the book of Romans, I encourage all of us to reread, to meditate, or maybe read for the first time. There was this announcement of the revelation of the righteousness of God. Again, uh, the righteousness of God by faith, what Luther's breakthrough was all about. In chapter 1. And then it says the gospel of grace being revealed to both Jews and Gentiles through the Son, Jesus Christ. That was revolutionary to teach this, to understand this. And then the revelation of wrath, of the, the wrath of God against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Even despite man's desire to suppress what Paul writes in the, in the beginning chapters of Romans, what God has revealed, they exchanged the truth that we see in God for idols, and that leads to moral ruin. And in today's text then, Paul now brings the indictment against both Jews and Gentiles. He's not being picky. He's saying all of humanity, there's this indictment against your sins before a holy God. And he's saying, we're not redeemed through the rituals of their religion or our cultural religions or even good deeds. And as one author says, he strips away any hope for self-justification. And so immediately after this passage is Romans 3, if you could look there in your Bibles, verse 21 through 26, not our main text today, but it's said by many, including Martin Luther, to be the center of the entire Bible, this justification by faith alone. This weighty, important doctrine of the gospel is only understood, though, this is why it comes after today's text, after you understand and proclaim verses 10 through 20, the indictment of the sinfulness of mankind. I like how one theologian puts it. Imagine yourself in God's courtroom, and it's about to be read as God's charge against you, the guilty criminal. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Imagine yourself in the courtroom of God. And in comparison to God's true righteousness, the true standard, God uh, relays the evidence before you. Nobody can pass that test. You realize your head sinks. Nobody, not even one person is righteous. And God is saying the only way you can come in is you have to match this perfection. And of course, that's a huge problem. There's something, there's something, but there's something else that's off. Not only is nobody righteous, but humanity in their natural sinful state deny that they are not righteous. That's why it's going to be such a problem for millions and billions of souls when they get in the courtroom of God. That they say, but God, Lord, didn't I do all these things? Or wasn't I just an above average citizen? Didn't I do enough good in my life? But the problem is they will deny that they have a sin problem that incurs the wrath of God. In actuality, They think they're fine, thank you very much. We saw the devastating effects of uh, Hurricane Ian uh, last month and many natural disasters across the world. It's sort of like an image of a man sitting on his porch drinking his daily black tea 
while a hurricane is wreaking havoc all around him soon to bring him under too. And you just, the, the, the camera zooms in on him when there's chaos all around him. He's just sipping his cup of tea. Everything is fine. This is the image of what is happening for so many in our world. One pastor noted that in an evangelism today, when random people are asked the question, why should God allow you into heaven? The study shows that 90% of the answers were works-based righteousness, meaning they thought that they could get into heaven because of what they've done their entire life. They didn't kill anybody. They were more charitable than the next. They went to church even for some of them. They were pretty moral people. But that self-righteousness is utter folly, the Bible says. It doesn't hold value before a holy God. Who has played Monopoly here? Every single person, I'm, I'm assuming, has played the game Monopoly before. All that fake money. I loved getting the 500 one, the golden uh, uh, tint. I just felt, especially as a teenager, I finally made it. When you have just a stack of those and everyone just has those dollars or those pink fighters or whatever. But it doesn't have any real value. What if you went around in life feeling secure because you have all this monopoly stored away? Or if I went to the Hoons and I took all their monopoly cash and I doubled it and I put it all in my pocket, you would have this false sense of security. That would be ridiculous. That's what it is to go to God's courtroom and say to him, look at all my spiritual monopoly money. Look at all my good works. Let me in. God, it's in every pocket. I have $500 spiritual bills. I have enough to even get Larry Sachs in. <laughs> and God will say, that doesn't have any value here. Your works are actually like filthy rags to me, it says in Isaiah 64. So again, the problem is that humanity has a deep, deep sin problem. But the problem is also that humanity left in their natural state deny that there actually is a problem. Nobody, not even one, is righteous. But what about the grandpa that sits on the porch? He's the sweetest little thing. He doesn't hurt anybody. Nope, not even one. What about Gandhi? He promoted peace in society. Nope, not even one. What about those who work for the World Hunger Fund or even uh, the life of Mother Teresa? Nope, not even one. Righteousness to God is a perfect standard. And nobody comes close to that standard, not even one. And if you, still, if you still don't get it, Paul then goes on to say in verse 11, no one understands. Nobody understands truly the things of God left in their natural sinful state, their natural depraved state. Depraved is just another way of saying, quote, marked by corruption and evil. Left in your unregenerate, unsaved state, nobody understands the things of God. Non-Christians can study the Bible. Non-Christians can ph philosophize uh, uh, about uh, religion and Christianity, but left in a depraved state, nobody understands the things of God. There are hundreds of scholars out there, biblical scholars and theologians that have all the advanced degrees, but did you know there, there are, many of them profess, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, but I know the Bible very well. They read on and on and study the scriptures, but they can't see, they can't understand. So what Paul is saying here is not that any person can't read the word of God and recite what is told in the scriptures, but nobody understands if truly left in their unsaved, depraved, natural state. It's much like the Pharisees back in Jesus' days 
who heard Jesus teach many times but never could see the light because of the blindness of their souls. Nobody understands. Verse 11, no one seeks for God. Nobody seeks God. The Bible says so. R.C. Sproul, a great theologian, helped immensely when he quoted medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas. People who seem like they're seeking God are actually seeking the benefits of God but not God himself. You might be sitting here and you're saying, okay, maybe, maybe he's onto something there. Or maybe you know a relative, a friend, or a coworker. They do like enjoying talking about God, but what they're after is not God himself, but about the benefits of God. They are seeking meaning in life. They are seeking purpose in their life. They're seeking peace. They're seeking a way out of their guilty conscience. But the problem with that is only God can be the solution of these longings and of these questions. So they are not seeking God because nobody seeks God, but they are seeking the things that dabble on the outskirts of God, but not truly him. You see, that doesn't mean we stop reaching out to them, your friends, your family members, your neighbors, and so forth. Or it's not that we don't bend backwards to try to explain, to redirect, to shine light, and so forth. But nobody in their own right, their own path, seeks after God. And far be it from us that we then try to be the solution for people curious about the faith by not actually pointing them to the solution to our bad news. That would be a dead end. But friends, as scripture says, no one seeks for God in the first place. Only those who are regenerated, born again, as we'll see in our continuation of the series in John, as Jesus calls it, can truly seek God. All the Bible references to seeking God's face in the scriptures, seeking out his kingdom first. Those are all references to those who are already, those who believe, not to the non-believers, because again, left in your own state of sin, nobody seeks for God. That that included me and you. Now look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, before advancement in technology and saving documents on the, the cloud, and I don't know how that all works, and et cetera, et cetera, but I, I, I'm old enough to know, even in middle school, I was typing on a typewriter, turning in things, or uh, we didn't have all the technology to save and save and save. But imagine working on your thesis. Let's say you're going for your uh, maybe even PhD. You're on your 100th page. You're enjoying your favorite cold brew from Starbucks, and then suddenly you spill that all over your computer and all your stored files that were on that drive is kaput and they, you take it and they say, sorry, Robin, we, we couldn't retrieve the, doc- put that Monopoly money, we can't fix this for you. Your whole life without God then is like trying to earn all this moral credit for yourself and then being told, like this computer, it's actually worth nothing. I'm actually not seeing any record of anything in your account. It's, it's actually wiped clean. Robin, are you sure you had 100 pages? Yes, I'm sure. I had it all there. Well, it's empty, Robin. And that's exactly how spiritually bankrupt we are. But no one does good. You sure about that? Nobody does good. Well, it's good in the world's eyes, but not in God's. John Calvin, the reformer, talks about civic righteousness. He says, we think of them as good deeds, but you have to define what is good. What is actually goodness? And he expounds on that and he says, is it conforming outwardly to God's law? 
or to the law of the land. Maybe you're not lying. Maybe you're not coveting or killing. Okay, so that's one bit. But is it motivated for the glory of God? Even if you help uh, an older woman with her groceries across the street, is it motivated for the glory of God? Motivated by the heart that loves God? Loves God with his whole heart or his heart? For the non-believer, absolutely not. But even after becoming a Christian, our good works are tainted. Again, as Isaiah says, nothing is done in perfection. But what the difference is, is that we do these good deeds after faith. We do the good works in faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's acceptable, because of the performance of Christ, not the performance of our perfect ability. Now, some of you guys are new to the church. We love having you guys here. Some of you guys don't come from a Reformed background or uh, or, or even heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's one of our governing documents that really summarizes well, and we think most faithfully what the scripture teaches us about A to Z. Well, in chapter 16 of our confession, point number seven, is a small paragraph that describes what about the non-believer that actually probably even acts more morally than me, or some people in my church, or someone sitting next to me, or is defined as, oh, I thought you were a Christian by the way that you act. Have you met people that way? What about their good works? Well, the confession says, works done by unregenerate men or women, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet, because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God, end quote. Left in an unregenerate, unregenerate state, my friends, no one does good, not even one. Now let's read again verse 13 to the end. Their throat is an open grave, this is how we need to picture ourselves before Christ. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are, who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. <clears throat> and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We talked about this last week at the end of the prologue and uh, um, the beginning of the Gospel of John. The law is good. The law reveals to us the character of God. The law then uh, gives us a path after we are regenerated to, to live a certain way for the glory of God. But that second use of the law, we said last week, is to be this big, gigantic mirror spiritually for us to show you, Robin, how sinful you are before a holy God. It speaks to our conscience that we are not actually righteous in ourselves, that our good deeds aren't good enough, that you can't accumulate enough. It shows us the bad news of our true spiritual condition. So before you can understand the weighty, uplifting passage in verse 21 through 26, you have to understand the bad news, the weighty indictment first. So how does this relate then to the teaching of radical depravity, some may call it, or the beginning of the TULIP acronym, 
total depravity. It's the doctrine that doesn't mean that everyone is as sinful as they could possibly be or that go out and sin as much <coughs> as you could possibly sin. Excuse me. It doesn't mean that everyone will end up being like the worst sinner that you can imagine or Hitler. What it means is that we are all radically depraved to the core. That's what total depravity means. That as scripture says, we were sinners in the mother's womb. That evil and sin has touched and influenced every bit and every compartment of our being. Some of you guys have been part of a Reformed church for many, many years or decades. You might not have ever known that. You thought, oh, it's just, it, we're just so wicked to the, to the nth degree. No, that sin has touched every compartment. Your will, your thoughts, your affections, your volition. It's touched every bit of it. Our speech, our motivations, all tainted by sin. This is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. And so friends, in our unsaved state, our natural sinful state, we are objects of God's wrath. Every single person, without the intervening saving grace of the Lord, everyone is objects of God's wrath. That indictment can't be ignored. We cannot escape it on our own. We have to own up to the fact that we are sinful to the core. Yes, we need the intervention of God. I love this picture straight from the Bible. When uh, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, dies, Martha, his sister, is saying, oh, you don't have to bother. The body, the body is already decaying, Jesus. What a wonderful way to see that this, this parallel to our state of sinfulness that we are dead six feet under. We need the intervention of Jesus. Some theologies say, well, you're 90% corrupt, but there is 10% of you that is good enough to reach out to God and then be saved. No, the Bible clearly tells us no one is righteous. Everyone is an object of wrath. We are six feet under, dead in our transgressions, but thanks be to God, made alive because of Christ if we believe. You know, when I first learned of this doctrine, it really started to change my life. It wasn't just another check of, of the box of my learning theology. This actually had fruit in my own life and my journey. It changed my perspective of God, of, of God and his grace. Grace is defined, like we said last week, as unmerited intervention of our holy God, his favor towards us. It's unmerited. We don't deserve it. We're dead in the grave like Lazarus, not physically, but spiritually. And when I started to realize this, if we could truly see our state, we would also admit none of us are worthy then of being saving, of, of, of being saved. It was like in my, in my teen years, God, have I done enough to enter into the pearly gates of heaven to why did you save me to begin with? But he has intervened. And for the sake of the whole picture of bad news then leading to good news, let me then read, if you have in your Bibles there, oh, this sake of our hope and encouragement, verse 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the good news. And good news is only sweet 
only brings relief to the despairing soul when we understand the bitter taste of bad news first. Obviously, though, even though the Bible is clearly saying no one, not even one, has done good, is righteous, but you know what Paul is doing. He's always pointing us to the one. There was actually one who did come, one who was righteous from the very beginning, one who did every good deed for the pleasure and glory of the Father, one who obeyed and never sinned, who perfectly lived out the law, actually, so that he can in turn be our substitute, not only on the cross to receive the wrath and punishment of the sin that we deserve, but also as a substitute in regard to his perfect life of righteousness. And so, friends, if you believe in Christ, then when the Father actually peers down and sees you, he actually sees his perfect Son, and that should grant you all the encouragement that you need to get through the hard and difficult day. Oh, what a mighty savior we belong to. Is this how you really see me? I don't have to dress up. I don't have to go and, and get my 10 good deeds in on Saturday so that I can come refreshed on Sunday and that you could love me and that you could look on me fondly with, with just never ending love. And God says, no, it's because I see my son in you because you're united to him through faith alone, by grace alone. In Christ alone. And so on this Reformation Sunday, yes, learn theology, learn doctrine, learn about our human condition, but that's not the end goal. The go end goal is may that lead to genuine faith. May that lead to genuine repentance, genuine praise of the God who saved us from our total depravity, all by the sheer undeserved and, of course, unmerited grace of God. And since we've been focused a lot on outreach and evangelism here of late at Westminster, when someone opens up their lives to you and doesn't quite understand all the implications of all this, encourage them that you once were there too, that we're all in the same boat as those that need the grace of God to be saved. And so be patient, be kind, be a good listener. Don't look to just score theological points with them. Show grace as God has shown you marvelous grace. And leave this entirely up to God with constant prayer, of course, to regenerate the heart in need. Because oh, how we remember our great need constantly before our holy God. We rehearse this every Sunday together as a body. Because the Reformation wasn't about fame or a good tussle over one's pride or to simply score theological points, but for the right and due glory of the God who proclaims this good news to our weary souls. And so listen, receive, and believe in actually the good news of Christ Jesus. I'll close with this one short story. I was living in Chicago and I was getting dropped off by an Uber driver. And I thought, okay, this guy seems friendly, he's talkative. Not sure how long he was in the States, but we, we, we started talking about religion because I learned in seminary that uh, Muslims love to talk about religion even if it's not their own. And so I took that as an opportunity to just small talk about religion. And then he said, yes, it's, uh, uh, and we, we talked about the afterlife of, of paradise in their terms. And how do you get there? How do you get there? And he said, and he knew I was a Christian. And he said, oh, we, we gotta just be good. You gotta be good. You got to do enough good things throughout your life. And I said, oh, but how do you know it's enough? He's like, I, I, he said, only Allah knows how much 
is good. And I said, oh man, that's, that's a little bit hard for us because then I gave the whole presentation of our side in Christianity about good news because I said, friend, isn't that, aren't you just paranoid? Because you seem like a young guy, maybe in his 30s. If you have to live another 40, 50 years, 60 years, how do you know if you're ever going to get in? He says, I don't. And you could hear sadness. You could hear fear. But there was no guarantee to get into paradise. He just had to work hard, work hard, work hard before Allah. But thanks be to God, though, in Christianity, as one pastor said, it's the only religion where God comes down to us, not us trying to go up to God. And God reached down to us in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save us, despite ourselves, to save us, to show us grace, despite our total depravity, and that we can have assurance. Yes, we are called to do good deeds and good works and love him and love people. Oh, but it'll never be enough. But thanks be to God, it was enough in the life of Jesus. And so the next time you're having a dark day, even about your struggle with sin, remember this. Oh, it, it, the Reformation would have been for naught or for nothing or for no good purpose if we did not find our solace in Christ alone. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for showing us and convicting our hearts about our depraved hearts and souls. For without understanding this bad news, we would never see the sweetness of the, the balm for our souls, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here who has not believed, has not put their full faith and trust in the Son and his work, that are now feeling this conviction that no one is righteous, no one is good enough. Lord, would you save their souls even in this minute, even in this hour. May they turn their hearts, their hearts of despair to hearts of hope, love, worship, and obedience to you, almighty God. And for those of us who do believe, who are struggling with sin, who are struggling with how you view us, oh Lord, would you remind us again Oh, the sweet good news that you see us as perfect because we are united to the perfect son, Jesus Christ. May that change us. May that change our church. May that change the way that we look at life and look to serve you, oh gracious God. We pray this in Jesus' name.